Hello and welcome to Living Heritage, a show about people who are engaged in the heritage and culture sector, all those who keep heritage alive at the community level. I'm Dale Jarvis, and today's guest is Pam Hall. Pam Hall is an interdisciplinary artist, a scholar, a filmmaker, and a writer. Her visual art has been exhibited locally, nationally, and internationally, and is represented in many corporate, private, and public collections, including the National Gallery of Canada. She's won national awards for her work as a designer in film for Rare Birds, one of my favorite movies, uh, Newfoundland movies, and as a children's book illustrator for Down by Jim Long Stage, and was recently inducted into the Fortis Hall of Honor at the Newfoundland and Labrador Arts Council. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. I'm delighted you're here. Because I think we were going to try and get you on earlier, and you did something to your foot. or you were, Probably. Yeah. <laughs> I'm at that age where it's either my foot or my knee. Something's always going, I guess. Yeah. So I, I wanted to talk a little bit, maybe about your art and where you started and your background, and then we'll talk about where, where you are today and what you're working on. Um, I was trained yeah. as a visual artist. My undergrad degree was a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Painting, Printmaking, and Design. Um, but when I came to Newfoundland millions and millions of years ago, <laughs> I worked for the first decade in the public service, in right. the Department of Education, um, and in the Department of Communications, um, working on art education and culture and cultural policy. Um, when I finally left that work, um, I had traveled the entire province a hundred times, mm. down the Labrador coast, out the southwest coast doing workshops in schools, and um, I think had been completely transformed yeah. by my experience in rural Newfoundland in that decade. <clears throat> so when I went back into the studio full-time, having done all this you know, public service, um, what fueled my work was the place. Right. Um, certainly the landscape. Um, for a long time, I, I worked with rock and stone imagery, um, but very soon um, cultural practice became central mm -hmm. um, to my work. I mean, I've worked a lot around the female body. I was in the medical school as the artist in residence yes, there. Yeah. I follow my questions. If people say, what kind of practice do you have? I say, I have a practice that is based on research, and I follow my questions. I often spend five to six years on a project, on a exploration, um, and the work I'm doing now, um, both as a scholar and a visual artist, came from an early experience um, in the inshore fishery out of Kitty Vitty, um, working on the crew of Eli Tucker, and um, who has passed now, bless his heart, um, from 1988 until the moratorium in 1992. Mm -hmm. So tell me about that. How did you how did you get into that situation? I arrived on the wharf um, as the art director of an episode of Pigeon Inlet. Oh, go on, yes. I was working, um, you know, as an artist and photographer, but in 1987, I guess I was dragged into the independent film and television sector here. Um, kind of in and around St. John's as it was emerging. Right. So the first film I designed or art directed was Finding Mary March. Um, following that, there were little half-hour episodes of this and that, which led to designing Secret Nation and Extraordinary Visitor and 
rare birds and above and beyond, et cetera, et cetera. I spent 20 years. Mm. And these are some like iconic pieces these in Newfoundland cinema. I would cinema. like to yeah. say these are the foundational independent yeah, films. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in our in our community. They're, they're, the, they're the canon. Yes, we yeah. were the A-team. <laughs> As my producer, Paul Pope, would say, we were the A-team. And um, I uh, learned immensely making film, um, using some of my skills as a visual artist. But then as I went back into the studio as a visual artist, I used a lot of my skills and knowledge from film. Mm-hmm. I'm the, the body of work of mine that belongs to the National Gallery of Canada um, is called The Coil. Um, it is consists of a cod trap that has been bound into a 17-fathom, 250-pound line for drawing on the world with. I never would have not only imagined that work, um, but been capable of deploying it, hmm. putting boats in the water and crews on the land, were it not for my film experience. So, so you show up on the wharf... Show up on the wharf. And, and the Tuckers are there. And, and Eli's there, and it's fall. And, you know, I say, okay, we're going to shoot in this little little part of one of about six twine lofts on the second floor of his premise, which has since been replaced by the plantation. Um, and he said, go ahead, girl, do what you need to, but I can't give you any help. I said, that's fine, you know. And it wasn't a big cruise, so I spent, I wanted the back part of the loft, which had a tiny window in it overlooking the kitty-vitty gut cleared and I spent about four days myself moving purse stains from one side of the room to the other and I was transformed by the smell of them that's where the coil came from I mean it was made out of god trap was a piece of gear with incredible history in yes it, you know yeah. a working piece of gear that had been made by hand and had this history in the water I mean the the old cod trap that Eli inevitably gave me was, you know, had been working for 20 years. And it caught, you know, half a million pounds of fish or more. Yeah. You know, it summered in the water and it wintered fall on the land, drying out. It was like ignited in a remarkable kind of set of performance-based work in my practice. Um, so being on that wharf doing that set dressing and, you know, moving things around for the camera and then staying to wrap and put all the junk back where I moved it out of, um, I kind of fell in love. I fell in love with that place. I felt a kind of calm on that wharf and mm. connection that I'd never felt before. And so I asked Eli, by this time they were finished with trapping and they were starting to handline um, by the time we wrapped that Pigeon Inlet episode. And um, I said, would you mind very much if I hung around? He said, well, what do you want to do? <laughs> And I said, I, I just really kind of want to watch, and I, I don't want to get in the way, but I, I'd like to, you know, learn. So I went out with Wally, his eldest son, and Caleb, his youngest son, and learned how to handline that that fall. Um, I think I made the coil that winter in my own back shed, which was like my twine loft, and part of my crew would come and, and, and watch, mm-hmm. drink beer, you know, <laughs> think I was doing something totally ridiculous. And um, so I stayed there and fished um, maybe three days a week, maybe five days a week, some days. Serious tourist, very serious tourist. Um, Eli, the best compliment I was ever paid in my life was from my skipper, Eli Tucker, who in the third year I was on the boat 
said, Pammy, if you were a man, I'd hire you. <laughs> That's a good compliment from an old and fisherman. And I said, yeah. Eli, if I was a man, you couldn't afford it. <laughs> so this was my first like daily encounter with what I came to call Fisher's knowledge. Right. Um, not just Fisher's ecological knowledge, which is big in terms of where things are, how things work, how the bottom operates, how the currents and tides and wind and, and everything influences the way you lay down a trawl on the bottom of the water or the way you set a trap and, you know, out off Redhead. Um, but all kinds of other knowledge. I mean, he had a sawmill right there on the wharf. He would go out. He, would, he made boats. He was making wooden motorboats. Mm -hmm. When the moratorium came, he cut off the top gunnels on the big diesel, which was his trap skip, and raised up her gunnels. You know, I think 23 inches, I can't remember exactly, right? And then took her out into deep water for crab. This was a man um, who knew um, the physical world physically, who knew the material world with a level of expertise informed by generations of history. You know, before he died, I, I live in an old heritage house, and I noticed that the wind seemed to be rattling my, <laughs> my windows in an almost scary way. And so I asked Eli, you know, are the winds getting worse? The house has been there a 100 years. It can't possibly be worse. He said it is worse. Hmm. They're getting stronger. And somebody challenged me on that. <laughs> I said, why would you take fisherman's word for that? And I said, because this fisherman has his, his father's knowledge, his grandfather's knowledge, and his great-grandfather's knowledge about the wind specifically yeah. in this part of the world. Yeah. And he has it as, at his fingertips. He doesn't need to Google anything, this guy. So, yeah, I'm going to trust him. So those four years um, fishing with Eli... Um, we had gillnets out for salmon. He had nine traps in 1992 that we had to pull out of the water on that bright day in July that still makes me weep um, when the moratorium started. Um, they would hand line in the, in the fall, and uh, then they, they shifted to crab. Mm -hmm. um, but he was a, a highly knowledgeable expert multi-species inshore fisher and I um, made work out of that place and that experience for many years um, you know not just the coil I made a body of work called inshore artifacts I made a big piece out in Bonavista called fragments from the inshore archives about the inshore fishery there um, and after I stopped working about the fishery because I was ashamed <laughs> to be the only person <laughs> kind of working. Um, and I felt like I was, I mean, making art is like fishing. You throw something down into this black place, which is massive, and you trust it will be abundant, and you pull up sustenance. Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, that's a metaphor for yeah. artistic practice. For artistic creative, creative in, practice, yeah. Yeah, in any discipline. Yeah. And um, I guess in 2005, maybe, I turned back to that experience on the wharf and I made a series of work called Things I Learned from Eli Tucker, which I'm still very emotional about. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, there were six panels and there were lists of things 
you know, and it was like, it was the prototype for what became the Encyclopedia of Local Knowledge. Right. So, so yes, yeah, so maybe we can, we'll, we'll shift into that because... I, even hearing you talking about it, I can I can see kind of that artistic evolution into what then became your work on the mm-hmm. Encyclopedia of Local Knowledge, which you've done in several communities. What was the what was kind of the first area you worked on? It was the Northern Peninsula, was it? Yes, it was yeah. Bond Bay. Okay, and the Great Northern Peninsula, all the way up to Saint Anthony and down around the corner to Conch. Right. So now, for people who haven't seen your work, um, can you can you kind of describe what what people's experience would be seeing seeing the piece? Right. Um, The Encyclopedia of Local Knowledge um, is a collection of pages. Right now, they are on-bound, disordered pages that live in a leather box, um, owned by communities, and um, not-for-profit organizations in each of the communities where the knowledge was gathered. If you took these pages out of the box and put them on the wall of an art gallery, as they were in, the, in the, my show at the Rooms in 2014, um, you would have about 50 feet, um, three to four pages high of panels that with pictures and drawings and maps and text represent the deep practice-based, place-based knowledge of individuals in Bond Bay and Flowers Cove and St. Anthony and Conch. Mm-hmm. Sometimes there would be primitive drawings taken out of a sketchbook. Sometimes there would be hand- fragments of handwriting. Um, sometimes there would be maps um, of Fisher's ecological knowledge that had been collected by DFO and turned into something that looked incredibly scientific. But on my page, the map would be excerpted, and so would the cautionary note that DFO put in about, be careful about this, this is knowledge from local fishermen. Right, yeah. <laughs> so it might not be real, yeah. you know? Which is strange, because all the knowledge DFO has, they got from local fishermen, sure, whether yeah. it was through logbooks or interviews or landings, you know, tabulated at the wharf. So now, as, as someone who's coming into the community and, and kind of amassing this information, working with local people, where do you start? What's what's your point of entry? How do you how do you get into this work? It's so amazing, you know. It's it's. Um, I started this work when I was doing my my PhD, and I've worked in community as a documentary filmmaker, as a as an artist who works with around women's labor or the women's bodies. So I wasn't really aware that you know my process could also be described as my methodology yeah right, right. <laughs> till I got to school again and I went oh yes well this is my methodology and essentially it is you know the way any attentive curious respectful stranger would enter a community um, and that's you know by asking questions of the very first person you meet and then listening mm-hmm. so people who work at gas stations <laughs> And the grocery and confectionery stores by a gas station are wildly knowledgeable. They don't only hold locational knowledge and geographic knowledge, um, because everybody who comes in is asking directions. How do I get to that park? Or where's that place in Gross Moor? And where? Blah, blah, blah. Um, But they know their community. They know who knows what 
where the one of the common um, formats in the encyclopedia are a set of maps called the who knows what where maps. Mm -hmm. They're kind of like a visual bibliography. But if you look at them, you will see a person's name in a box hovering over a background of a community. And under their name will be a, a set of words, rabbits, moose hunting, caribou skin, which are things they know about. If they're in a yellow box, I interviewed them. If they're in a white box, I didn't get to them yet. Um, but another researcher might want to go and get to them, or I might want to go and get to them the next time I'm out in Portageois. Um, I think it's the project is is operates on a lot of levels for me. The political level, um, which a lot of people don't see, is um, empowering other knowers. I grew up as an artist who loved science, um, but I was trained at a moment in, in, in the academy when science was a form of knowledge and art was not. So I've always been very suspicious about like who gets to make knowledge anyway. And how come when I do a research project as an artist, it's not knowledge, and if a scientist does it, it's knowledge? Or how come if a graduate student interviews Eli, then what the graduate student makes is knowledge, but what Eli has is not knowledge? Yeah. And, you know, I think that's profound. Mm -hmm. Profoundly interesting set of questions. Um, I, I also found one of the things that I remember is that you had mapped out, you know, you would have these boxes with people who knew things, and then you would link them. So if that person told you to talk to this person, then you would show the linkages in community. And I like this idea that community knowledge isn't held individually. Oh. It, 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 is a, it is a collective body of knowledge. And it's all these people are like little, little cogs and little wheels in this, you know, kind of this knowledge machine. And, and so I don't need to know everything about rabbits because, you know, buddy next door knows something about rabbits. Well, exactly. Right? Yeah. And the, the great thing about that is that, and I've often thought this, I could easily have made, and, and the first chapter of the encyclopedia, the first project in Bombay in the Great Northern Peninsula was 92 pages of like knowledge pages. Um, the second chapter on Fogo and Change Islands was 75. I could have done 200 pages in both places. And, you know, I could have done 200 pages in conch. Yeah. Because everybody knows something and everybody knows a lot. So just because you're the one who I'm talking to about how you salt your fish or fertilize your garden or trench your potatoes doesn't mean I couldn't also talk to you about inshore fishing, knitting, you know, how the gravestones got laid out for the Catholic family in the Protestant graveyard. You know, everybody knows I could make 100 pages from one person. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, and I think one of the things that's interesting to me and, and that keeps me fueled um, and working on this is that um, I learn so much. I'm making my first quilt right now, and um, it's so not a quilt. I mean, there's eight pages on quilt making in the Fogo and Change Islands Encyclopedia. Those pages represent knowledge about quilt making. Um, I'm just kind of sewing pieces of stuff together, and it's pretty messy on the back. <laughs> if my expert quilters at the Winds and Waves Artisans Guild in Fogo saw the back of this, they would not be happy with me. <laughs> Um, but they're thrilled. 
that I'm even trying trying to le- you know to learn, yeah. to um, step into an area and play um, with some of the very you know simple lessons they their deep knowledge yeah. kind of introduced me to and someone asked me um, so when does this become your knowledge Pam you take all the pictures you make all the drawings you talk to all the people you make the poetic and the non-poetic text that's on these pages when does it become yours and that's a really interesting question because mm-hmm. all of all of my knowledge comes from somewhere else yeah yeah it's interesting when I, when I work with um, when I work with students in the folklore department you know there's this old academic idea that uh, as an academic that you become the expert in, in your field and and I work in the field of public folklore and I always say to the public folklore students that the the experts are in the community and and your job is not to be the expert your job is to be kind of the facilitator and the broker and the conversation starter i was i was uh, saying to someone the other day that you know my role is kind of an agent provocateur for culture you know i i kind of go in and i talk to people um one of the things in, in terms of knowledge that i that i run into all the time is that I, I will speak with someone in a community, and I will say, "I want to. I want to know about you know um, birch broom making." And people will say, "You know, why do why do you want to know that? Like, no one no one thinks that's important. No one makes birch brooms anymore. And of course, there are birch broom makers. Do you run into that? Do, do people devalue the knowledge they have? Um, I haven't actually run into that. Really? Um, and I think, I mean, I had two completely different sets of responses between chapter one and chapter two. And I think I understand them relatively well. In chapter one, I was traveling a number of communities in a linear way. You know, I'd get back to them occasionally, but I wasn't in the community for a long period of time. And I was making something that I couldn't really show people. People would say, oh, you're making an encyclopedia. What's it going to look like? And I went, I have no idea (laughs) because I haven't made it yet. Yeah. And I think part of the power of of what I was doing was that it wasn't just scholarship. It was an art and knowledge project. So they knew I was going to fool with what they gave me. They knew that I wasn't writing a textbook or, you know, this wasn't this wasn't, you know, real serious stuff like what you're doing. (laughs) So they never if they agreed to talk to me, um, they never once diminished hmm, their own knowledge. what they what yeah, they knew yeah. and um, by the time I got to Fogo and change doing the postdoctoral work for chapter two I had chapter one under my arm so you could so when people said what I is it going to look like you can say it's going to look, look like this look I like want to make yeah. one of these for you and they yeah. went come on in I, and I think as well there's something quite remarkable happening on Fogo Island and change yeah. islands yeah yeah well and that's one of the reasons why I wanted to go there um, I am very proud of this work, um, very proud of the collaborative way that it's been built, very proud of the way it's been delivered back to the community mm-hmm. and that they own it. So every step of the way, I've been really rigorous in terms of the process. But after the first chapter, um, many people thought this was a heritage project, a way to save traditional knowledge. And indeed, that may be one of its functions. Um, for me, my, my deepest intention and the thing that excites me the most is how this work can reconstruct our idea of the local mm. as small, closed, provincial, 
static, traditional, traditional in that not modern sense, local in that not global sense, right? So if it's in my encyclopedia, it's live, it's lively, and somebody is doing it. It might be in danger of being lost. Maybe the 85-year-old woman who's still doing the hand-pleated sealskin boots in the Straits of Belle Isle isn't going to do them anymore, but there's some young woman down in Portishwaugh who's learning how to do that. So going to Fogo Island with Chapter 2 um, was a dream come true because, indeed, that's a community that has explicitly reclaimed in many, many ways the value of their own local knowledge and put it into conversation mm. with international knowledge, foreign knowledge, modern knowledge, contemporary knowledge. Um, so on Fogo, I was able to make that more explicit. I was able to put the punt builders in conversation with the designers who made the punt chairs. And that was nice to be able to, to not have to um, work too hard at that, right? And what? also it's an island. Both of them are islands. And I was there for about the same period of time, but I was there. I would run into the people I interviewed in home hardware. I could, you can drive. If you're staying in Fogo, you can be in all the other 10 communities on Fogo Island in the course of a day. Yeah. So if I miss someone in Tilting in the morning, I could drive back to Tilting in the afternoon. Mm. And um, by the time I was back in St. John's making those pages, I would pick the phone up. And I'd phone up Alice Griffin in Seldom and say, Alice, now what year did electricity come to Fogo Island? I need that. She'd say, oh, 1968. I'd go, thanks, bye. <laughs> so relationships were built there. I'm a bit, I made great relationships on the West Coast, too. But they weren't as sustained. You know, yes, because you have, I wasn't a, you have that the longer area community. that you're traveling around. Yeah. yeah. Is, is there a, a Chapter 3 in the works? Will oh, yeah. You, where, would you, yeah. where are you going to go? Well, I have two, and people always ask me this, and, and my answer is, well, first of all, I have to raise the money. You know, people think that artists just, I don't know. Live on air. Can somehow <laughs> survive in yeah. the Bay for three months with no money. It costs $175 a day to be in the Bay. And that's if you've got a little bit of, you know, help and you don't eat much. Um, but there are other places in Newfoundland I'd, I'd like to do. Um, I wouldn't mind returning to Bonavista Bay where I have a lot of kind of connections and early work with the piece I did out in Bonavista. Um, and, but I'm eager to take it international. Um, the reason, part of what I was saying earlier about local knowledge being innovative and iterative and um, in conversation can be shown um, really easily if I had a chapter of Tasmanian coastal knowledge or knowledge from the Shetlands or the Faroes yeah. or from Ireland. Coastal communities have a huge amount in common and they may be fishing different species, using different gear, having different cultures and different languages, but they are embedded in place and environment in ways that are wildly resonant you know so yeah i'd like to i'd like to do a chapter in somewhere in the north atlantic or norway or i i, I will 
let's say Orkney is, Orkney. is somewhere I've been, which I love. And there's I so know, many Orkney brought me amazing, to Newfoundland. Amazing spots. You there. know, but I never got to Shetland when I yeah. was in Orkney, right? And people say, boy, what is the... One of the straits remind you of the geography is so different there, and you know there's no trees and it's blah blah blah. It's just like Orkney. <laughs> well, I know a fabulous fisherman storyteller in Shetland that I'll have to uh, hook you oh. up with. Yeah. Anyway, that that brings us to the end of our time. It goes so quickly. Well, that's great. Yeah. Perfect. And thank you, and thank you for all you do. I, I'm a big fan of the encyclopedia and and your well, work, and it's great to have you in on the show. Well, it is now. Um, Live and online, both chapters, every single page. So, so how, how can people find that? Just type in encyclopediaoflocalknowledge.com. Great. Thank you, Pam. You're welcome. Thank you, Dale. I'm Dale Jarvis. You've been listening to Living Heritage, a production of CHMR Radio 93.5, in collaboration with the Intangible Cultural Heritage Office of the Heritage Foundation of Newfoundland and Labrador. Our production assistant is Stephanie Machikian. Find us online at ichblog.ca or on iTunes. Thanks for listening. <laughs>